All right, well, the historical narrative of the Old Testament and all of the literature in it is a story that constantly looks forward. But it doesn't look forward to the unexpected, but to the revealed, right? In a way, it looks forward to a story already told or to a story that was being told in advance over a few centuries. As time progressed, the story that would unfold was being revealed by God. And it's because of those details that it's a history of unwavering anticipation in the midst of utter chaos. By the time the narrative gets to the latter half of the United Kingdom of Israel, around 1000 BC, under the rule of Solomon, things go from bad to worse. It quickly, the kingdom goes from united to divided after Solomon's death. The southern kingdom of Israel was tossed to and fro for a number of reasons, of course, religiously, politically, and because of issues related to national security. It affected the economy and a host of other things. But the cause of all of her woes really had everything to do with their relationship to God. In terms of religion, the southern kingdom was in a a constant state of indecision. On one side of the spectrum was the one true and living God, and on the other side was this smorgasbord of idols that represented various demons. And the hearts of the people were swinging back and forth between the two. One king at one time would rebel against the Lord and pursue any number of gods among the pagan nations, practicing their various rituals and gross forms of worship. And then another king would follow God and and his word, and he would restore true worship in the land. The nation went back and forth with radical and violent upheavals, going to war. This went on for about 400 years, from the middle of Solomon's reign until about 600 BC, when the Babylonians took the Jews captive. It was just a hot mess of confusion and division. The northern kingdom of Israel, though, was not so divided because they were just pagan throughout that entire time. They were, of course, rebuked by the prophets, but to no avail, and they were eventually conquered and then scattered among the nations about a hundred years before the southern kingdom. But woven through all of this instability and chaos and rebellion of the people, there was this silver thread of revelation, a revelation of a future hope as everything and Everyone and the two nations were being rocked between two things. The prophets from both, from both kingdoms were communicating at different times, in different places, and even in different ways, but their message had this, this peculiar harmony to it. They would frequently prophesy to the two kingdoms about God's judgment because of their rebellion and their disobedience, but mingled within their prophetic woes was this promise of hope. Even after the southern kingdom was taken into captivity to Babylon, Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel were looking forward. And when the people of the southern kingdom returned to the land 70 years after their captivity, they were without a king. They were constantly harassed by the surrounding nations, but there was Zechariah and Malachi. They were still looking forward, but they eventually died. And Israel, though present in her land had essentially been reduced to ashes. And then the prophetic voice went silent. There were no more prophets. There was no more revelation. But their message of hope, as it was recorded in the scriptures, was ringing in their ears, ears of the people, for another 400 years. So what were they looking forward to? Many things for sure, like national security, 
economic prosperity. Sounds like us, doesn't it? A righteous government. Now we're sounding like us. And they were looking for permanent religious reform. But there was one thing in particular that would secure all of those things. The prophets were looking forward to a man. One man who would be all things unto God and all that would be good for man. They were looking for a prophet, a priest, and a king. A prophet to be the ultimate voice of God. A high priest who would perfectly mediate between man and God and a king to establish and uphold the justice of God. And if all of these offices were united in the right person, all of God's purposes would be fulfilled, and all things in heaven and in earth would be reconciled to him. This one man was known to the prophets as Messiah. And it's the story of this one man that they were telling in advance. But there's some challenges. If all three of these offices were to be held by one man, some interesting things would have to change to make that possible. Most of all, there would have to be a fulfillment of the first covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. Things could not continue as they were. Here's why. A priest had to come from the lineage of Aaron, but according to the promise of God, a king could only arise from the sons of David out of the tribe of Judah. So either the covenant itself or the promise of God had to give Because under the old economy, one man could not fill both offices. Well, the promise of God and the promises of God cannot change. A son of David had to sit on the throne forever. But the covenant, it could be fulfilled and then set aside for another to take its place. Here's the details. Psalm 89 says this. God says this. He says, I've made a covenant with my chosen I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Nothing can alter that promise in the slightest. But the covenant to Israel, it could be fulfilled. Another could be put in its place for Messiah so that he could fill all three of these offices. In anticipation of the Messiah, the prophet Jeremiah said this. He said, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. In the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 32. This new covenant will not be like the old covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. It'll be altogether new, which will allow Messiah to be prophet, priest, and king. So a completely new covenant would be necessary for a priest to arise from the tribe of Judah and the descendants of David. In one of the greatest messianic psalms regarding this king from the tribe of Judah, we have this very interesting statement. The Lord has sworn... And he will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110. 
When the Messiah comes out of the tribe of Judah from the sons of David, he will be a priest. He will be. Not from the sons of Aaron, but according to a new order, the order of Melchizedek, who was the ancient king of Salem, which would later be called Jerusalem. He was both a righteous king and he was priest of the Most High God, and he ruled in the city of peace. Of this priestly order and from the tribe of Judah, the Messiah would come. He would come. But he would also need to be a prophet. Now, prophets, it's kind of nice. They could come out of any tribe, and they did. And as early as Moses, we have this messianic anticipation in Deuteronomy 18, where God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. The Messiah. He's prophet. He's priest. And he's king. But there's something very unusual about this man and his mission. Isaiah 7.14 says that he will be conceived of a virgin. And quite literally, when he is born, God will be with us in the flesh. And just as unusual as a virgin conception is, this person will not begin to exist at his conception. Only his mode of existence will change from eternally existing in spirit to dwelling in the flesh. The prophet Micah reported this about the coming Messiah. He says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. You know, typically it's the location of Messiah's birth that gets our attention here. And, and though providing the location of a person's birth hundreds of years in advance is a big deal, it's not the emphasis of the prophet here. Micah was concerned primarily with the mission of the child and his origin. You know, all of us have our mother's womb to point to for our origin. And while the Messiah's flesh would be fashioned in his mother's womb, his actual organ, his origin cannot be traced in terms of time, but only in eternity. His goings forth, the prophet says, are from everlasting. He's a person who existed before time existed. And then, at the right time, he would step into time, entering the body, being fashioned in his mother's womb. This is no ordinary man. The prophet Isaiah spoke again of this child, saying, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. The person who enters the body of this virgin-conceived child will be no other than God in the flesh. No wonder this man can fill the office of prophet, priest, and king. No other man is worthy, and no other man is capable. As a prophet, God in man would be able to speak to man for God. And as king, God and man could rule over man with truth and love and justice. And as priest, well, that is a different matter. Think with me through this. One man was coming to mediate between God and man, for man is a great sinner 
and God, a righteous judge who cannot overlook sin. So what did the prophets anticipate regarding the Messiah's priestly mission? Now, this is the most stunning revelation in all of prophetic literature. It has everything to do with death, every bit of it. The messianic priest was coming to die. The body that would be fashioned in his mother's womb was being prepared for a sacrifice. His mother was to give birth to an offering. He was not coming as a priest to offer the blood of animals, which could never take away sin, could never purify the worshiper. This priest was coming to offer his own blood to provide eternal salvation. Again, and most sobering, Isaiah prophesied in chapter 53, but this time his vision was just concerning the nature of Messiah's sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. He said this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace with God, and with his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and he was stricken for the transgressions of my people. And even though he had committed no violence or spoke any deceit, the Lord willed that he be crushed in order to make his soul an offering for sin by carrying our iniquities. This priest would take from us the guilt of all our sin in order to be judged in our place so that we might be considered righteous before God. This priest would spill his own blood to wash away our sins. God in man was going to pay for the sins that man committed against God. That is very interesting. God in man was going to pay for the sins that we committed against him. The judge of all would be punished for the sins of all. Though he was innocent of all sin, he would suffer for all sinners. And the question that comes up in the scriptures is how would he do that? The nature of his death was legal and it was substitutional. He was being penalized for sin, but not his own sin. And he was being punished in the place of others. Legal, substitutional. But what would be the mechanism of his death? How would he die? The prophetic psalm written around 1000 BC, interestingly enough, about 800 years before crucifixion was ever practiced in the world. This psalm reported a number of startling details. The psalmist saw the events surrounding this priest's death and even heard what was spoken by him. Speaking as the Messiah, Psalm 22 records this, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, but they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. This priest would offer his life as a sacrifice in the most gruesome manner, simply to typify the gravity of our sin and the judgment due. But by taking our sin and bearing our judgment, he would deliver us from the wrath of God and place us into his eternal love. Lastly, the prophets did not only see the death of Messiah for the sins of man, they also saw his victory. 
the Messiah would rise from the dead in order to distribute all of the benefits of his death, but only to those who trust him. Following his sacrifice, the Lord says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. Isaiah 53.10. Listen, you cannot divide the spoil if you are dead. He would rise. And you know what the spoils are? The souls of men. The souls of men. The prophetic psalm declared that the Lord would not allow Messiah's body to rot away in the grave, Psalm 16.10. And following the cries of Messiah at his brutal death, it is declared that all will worship him when he rules over the nations, Psalm 22, 27 through 29. This Messiah was coming to die for sin and to rise in victory. Now, Messiah is a Hebrew word. The Greek word for Messiah is Christ. And the Christ is Jesus. And Jesus is Lord of all. He is the prophet who spoke the gospel to us. He is our high priest who suffered at Calvary for us. And he is our king who is to come and rule. He's not just the hope of Israel. He's the savior of all men. He is the only hope. And so everyone who puts their trust in him will be saved. Isaiah also reported that when the Messiah arrives, those who dwell in deep spiritual darkness will see a great light. Isaiah 9.2. When darkness prevails in the sinful heart of man, only the light of Christ can give him hope. Man deserves death, but Christ came to give us life. 